Thank you very much, guys, for uh, leading us in prayer and also uh, the scripture reading uh, for this morning. I wonder, uh, GVC folk, if you can remember the last time that we met for in-person worship. I'll give you a second to guess, maybe talk to each other about it. Uh, if you guessed March 8th, 2020, you would be right. Now, listen to this. That was 27 weeks ago. You know that there are 52 weeks in a year, right? That means that we have not gathered together for in-person worship for more than six months, except once for an outdoor service on July 19th, uh, unless you were there, then you have not been part of an in-person worship service, at least with us, for six months. We've been meeting online, worshiping online for the last six months. And I, you know, I'm actually, I'm very thankful that we've been able to do that. Um, imagine if we had to face this pandemic and try to be church somehow without the internet. I don't know how on earth we would be able to accomplish that. So, so the technology that we have that has allowed us to continue some sort of worshiping life uh, is a tremendous blessing to us and has been a tremendous blessing for a lot of churches, no doubt about it. But we are excited about restarting in-person worship. I'm excited about restarting worship uh, in-person worship. Like I said, September 20th, we'll be meeting again in the Knox Sanctuary, not in the gym like we did in the past, but in the sanctuary. Uh, and we'll be running two services a Sunday, one at 9 a.m. and one at 11 a.m. Now, admittedly, things are going to look a little different than they have in the past. Uh, you're going to have to register, pre-register to be able to attend services. We're going to leave some room for guests and what you could call walk-ins. Um, but generally, we're asking people to register for a service, which means we need to cap our attendance at 60 people, ages two and older. Uh, you're going to have to wear masks. There's not going to be a nursery. There's not going to be any Grace Kids ministry. And when you hear me rattle off all these kind of restrictions. I, I can completely understand if a question you're bouncing around in your head is this, will it be worth it? I mean, all the work that goes into um, preparing the premises and doing registration, all that kind of stuff, plus all the restrictions that we have to go through, etc. You wonder, you know, is it even worth getting back together like this? And I just want to assure you that I've thought a lot about that myself, and I have come to conclude that, yes, despite it all, it will be worth it. And as a staff, we've talked a lot about it, and we've agreed that, yes, it will be worth it. And we've talked about it as a leadership team. Will it be worth it? And we've agreed that, yes, it will be worth it. And, and we believe so much that, that this is important and it will be worth it that that's why we're going with two services right away because we want to make it possible for anyone, anyone who calls Grace Valley Church kind of their church home to be able to worship once a week if they so choose. Now, there are a lot of reasons that the Bible gives for why corporate gathered flesh in the flesh worship is so important. The Bible gives many of those reasons all over the place. And it's, it's good for us to think about this because recently, you know, in, in the last probably 20 years or so, uh, the importance of Sunday worship 
has actually been downplayed a fair bit in evangelical Christian circles. And one of the reasons is, is actually, it's, it's a good reason, in fact. It's, it was a corrective uh, for seeing um, what looked like in the evangelical Christian world, like an, kind of an empty faith. So, you know, as long as you're in church on Sunday, as long as you go to that worship service, it doesn't really matter what happens to your Christian life outside of Sunday. Monday through Saturday, you do what you want in any way you want. And it doesn't really matter so long as you're in the pew on Sunday morning. And of course, that is not what the Christian life is all about. And so in the last 20 years, people talked about, well, look, all of life is worship, and you can worship in other places, and certainly you can. You can worship God in a coffee shop. You can worship God on the Bruce Trail. You can worship God in all kinds of of non-churchy contexts. But, 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 even though that corrective is important, we need to remember that Sunday gathering or Lord's Day gathering of God's people together in the flesh to worship him, to to praise his name, to pray to him together, to hear him speak to us through his word and through the preaching of his word, all that kind of stuff, that remains a vital, vital, like an essential component of maintaining a vibrant faith. And again, there's many different reasons. We're looking today at Psalm 84 because Psalm 84 gives us one of those reasons, and it's a biggie. It's an important one. And we want to just explore that as we anticipate meeting together in the flesh, Lord willing, next Sunday. Now, before we get to the text, it's good to remind ourselves that this psalm, Psalm 84, is what you could call a pilgrim psalm or a traveler's psalm. Um, Old Testament Jews were expected to travel to Jerusalem at least once a year to worship God at the temple. And it was customary during their travels as they made their way to Jerusalem for that uh, time of worship to, to sing songs during the road trip. Kind of like, you know, when you go on a road trip, you've got your soundtrack and you sing along. Maybe it makes the time go quicker. I don't know. Uh, but we like to do that kind of thing, right? And, well, the Jews like to do that kind of thing, too. And their playlist was largely from the Psalms, the book of, of, of Psalms. Ver, uh, Psalm 120 to Psalm 134 were these songs that they would sing as they traveled. They were called the Psalms of Ascent or Songs of Ascent. But there were other ones kind of scattered throughout Um, the Psalter as well, and Psalm 84 was one of those psalms. And in this psalm, we see three things that we're going to look at together this morning. We're going to see, first of all, that church gathering together to worship is experiencing a taste of home. That's the first thing. Second of all, we're going to see that life is very often a dangerous journey. And third, we experience security and safety in that worshiping moment as we come home. Okay? Those are the three things. So, let's have a look. The first thing is, um, worship is a taste of home. What do I mean by that? Well, that's in verses 1 to 4. And, and verses 1 to 2 
make a lot of sense when you know that this is a pilgrim psalm, right? How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord, my, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Imagine if you felt that way going every morning as you wanted to go to church or as you got up on Sunday morning as you anticipated going to church. I, I got to confess, it's not often that I, I, would, I would say my heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What's going on here? Well, remember, this is a traveler psalm. This is a, a pilgrim psalm. And so the author has been away from the worshiping community for a really long time. It might have been six months. It might have been a year. Who knows? Uh, but he has this intensity of desire because he's been away so long. And I, that I can relate with. Uh, I have an intensity of desire to be in in-person worship with God's people because we have been apart for so long. And so his whole self, his whole being is desperate to get back to it. Now, here's the question. Does that mean that he couldn't worship God at other times? If he's so desperate to experience worship in this way at this time? And the answer to that, of course, is no. It's not like we can't worship God in other places and in other contexts. When you do your devotions, and I hope and pray that many of you do, you spend time in reading the Bible and uh, in prayer, that's, that's worshiping God too. But it does mean that, that corporate worship, the gathering of God's people together in a particular place for the purpose of declaring the praises and glory of God is unique and and. Other forms are really no comparison to it. Now, why is that? Keep reading. Listen to verses 3 and 4. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar, Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. What the psalmist does is he compares... Corporate worship to being at home. He compares the temple to being at home. He, he says the temple is God's house. He says blessed are those who dwell in that house. What he's probably talking about there are the Levites. These are, are people whose professional job was to minister in God's house. That was their, their full-time job, so they're always there. He even says he's jealous of the birds, you know, he says sparrows found a home, swallows found a nest for himself. Uh, scholars say that he's probably talking about the nests that birds would make in the, I don't know, in the upper reaches of the temple. And he's jealous of them that they actually get to be there all the time. They get to be in the presence of God because that's where the, what the temple was. It was the place of God's presence. They got to be there 24-7. Now, why is going to the temple like going home? Do you feel that, like that when you go to church? Maybe you don't. Probably many of you don't. Well, there's a theme that runs through all of Scripture, and you'll see it in the Old Testament, you'll see it in the New Testament, and it's all over the place. And the theme is this theme of exile and homecoming, and it's very big in the Scriptures. Home. What is, what is home? We've talked about this before. Home is the place that fits you, that, that suits you. It's the place where you fit. It's the place where your 
most important needs are met. You need food, you need shelter, you need clothing. You have all that at home, right? And you also have your deepest desires met there. You think, well, what do you mean my deepest desires are met at home? Well, the Bible says that home is a place where your true self can actually exist. Let me, let me use an illustration here. Uh, school has started for a lot of kids this past week, and school is starting tomorrow or Tuesday for a lot more kids. Uh, and every September, Jessica and I remember when our kids were young, we would notice something is that, that um, for the first little while at school, or, or during September, they would come home from school and they would just like lose it over all kinds of little things, especially when they were young. Uh, they, would, they would have tantrums and they would, you know, kind of talk back and they would cry at the drop of a hat and all this kind of stuff. And you could say, we thought at first, well, it's just because they're tired. They're just getting used to the schedule and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's true. That's part of it. But, but there was more to it than that. Um, we came to realize that they spent all day at school kind of keeping it together, trying to be good, trying to listen to the teacher, trying to be a good friend to the other classmates, and trying to get along on the playground, and be good, be good, be good, be good. And when they got home, they were finally in a safe place where they could just let it all hang out, be who they truly are. It was not threatening. They felt a security at home. And you see, Scripture teaches that the human race, when we lived in harmony with God, in the garden, that's precisely what we had. We were in God's presence, and we were fully known by him and fully loved and accepted by him at the exact same time. And as we like to say around here, that's the holy grail of relationships, to be fully known and fully loved and accepted at the same time. We had that in the garden. But through our rebellion... We lost that. We were banished. We were exiled from God's presence. And we go through life being terrified of being fully known because if we're not fully known, or because if we are fully known, we believe, often rightly, that we will not be fully accepted and fully uh, cherished because of our sin. And so we've been thrust into this world where we, we now spend all of our time trying to get back to that place, into that kind of presence. Eva Hoffman, who is a uh, Polish-Jewish intellectual, she's passed on now, she uh, was a survivor of the Holocaust, she writes this, she says, since Adam and Eve left the Garden of Eden, is there anyone who does not in some way feel like an exile? We feel ejected from our first home and landscapes, from our first romance, from our authentic self an ideal sense of belonging, of attuning with others, others and ourselves, eludes us. Now, in the Old Testament, the place where you most experienced the presence of God was at the temple. That was where God said he would dwell in the midst of his people. So if you wanted to, to go to that place that home where you could be fully known and fully accepted, where you could experience and be attuned to others and yourself in his presence, you would go to temple. Now, in the New Testament, because of the work of, 
of Christ. The, the presence of God is not, the, the house of God is not the physical building anymore. It's not like you have to go to Jerusalem anymore, but it is where the people of God are gathered. We together, Christians, when we meet together, we meet as God's house. We don't go to God's house. We are God's house, you see? And it's the place, friends. It's the place where we're supposed to be anyway, when, when everything's happening the way it's supposed to happen. It's the place where we are accepted. Because you see, what is grace? Really, undeserved favor. The undeserved favor and presence and provision of God. We don't deserve it, but we are safe in his arms because he loves us despite our shortcomings, despite our failures, because Jesus has paid the penalty for our sin. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. We can be accepted in his presence. And so when we are the church, we are in a community of grace. We are in a place where all of us, regardless of our stature, rich, poor, successful, unsuccessful, got your act together, complete screw up. We're all on the same page and on the same level. And we're safe. We're secure. That's the first point. The church is a taste of home. Second thing. Um, the passage shows us here that life is a dangerous journey. Look at verses five through seven. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose heart are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears from God in Zion. Now that may sound strange that I said life is a dangerous journey because it sounds pretty good in those verses, but... Stick with me here. The psalmist is acknowledging that the trip to the temple is going to be long and it's going to be hard. He will experience heat, cold, rain, you know, weather, hunger potentially, thirst, uh, thieves and bandits. Uh, when you make your way up to Jerusalem, you have to go up through the hills, and in the hills is where the bandits and thieves lived, and they would come down in raiding parties and attack these caravans that were on their way to the temple. You could get injured, you could get sick. And the reason we know this is because he uses this term, this, this phrase, the Valley of Baca. What it means is the Valley of Weeping. It was a valley, a desert valley that you passed through on the way to Jerusalem, where it's very dry and it was very desolate, and it was referred to as the valley of weeping, and the psalmist is using it to refer to the difficulty of life. But he says it will be a piece of cake, in a sense, to get through that, because the destination is the presence of God at worship. Here's the lesson. Life is very often a dangerous journey. Not just kind of in the long term, but, but from week to week. Think about it. All week long, you are battered by the vicissitudes of life. You deal with busyness. You deal with sickness. You deal with money troubles. You deal with your own frailties that are caused by your sin 
and your sinful tendencies. You deal with family strife and problems that run, run up against. You deal with all the consequences on top of that of COVID and, and the pandemic we're in. You know, school is starting. Like we said, school is starting and um, a lot of students are excited to return to, to school, but they and their parents are also anxious. They're anxious about how it's gonna go. And, and parents are anxious about children's safety, but many, many students aren't just anxious about their safety physically, health-wise. They're anxious about their status. Will they have friends? When you start grade nine, man, it can be a terrifying thing. You, you know, will people like me? Will I have any friends? Will somebody sit with me at lunch? Will, will I get along with anyone? It's a tremendous burden that many kids feel. And on top of that, we, we know that Scripture says that, that Satan, who is the great enemy of God and the great enemy of God's people, he is gunning for believers all the time. He is seeking to undermine you at every turn. He's seeking to undermine if you're married. He's seeking to undermine your marriage. He's seeking to undermine your uh, relationships with your friends, your relationships with coworkers. He's trying to undermine your, your uh, confidence and your security because the Bible says, Peter says, that he is like a roaring lion prowling around seeking whom he can devour. And listen, at times... You can become so stressed and so overwhelmed. Um, it, it's, it's hard to continue on the journey. It, it feels hard to just put one foot in front of the other just to keep going. And, and that's, that's what the psalmist acknowledges and that's why he cries out and we can and should cry out the way he does in verse eight. Listen to this. Hear my prayer, Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, God of Jacob. It's very interesting he uses both these terms. He refers to God as God Almighty and he refers to God as the God of Jacob. We need both. You see, when you cry out to God, when you are feeling overwhelmed and you are facing the first days and weeks of school and you are wondering about your business or your employment or you are afraid for your relationships, when you feel like you need to cry out to a God, do you not want to cry out to a God who is actually able to do something? and not possibly able to do something because he's really strong, and not likely able to do something because he's super duper strong, but, but absolutely capable of doing something because he is almighty, that there is nothing that stands in his way. There is nothing that can, that can stop him from accomplishing his plan. There is no obstacle that he cannot plow through in order to accomplish what he has determined for you. Don't you need that? But how do you know you'll hear you? he'll hear you? Why would he bother to hear you? You and I, we're just a bunch of pipsqueaks on this little planet floating through the universe. And half the time, we don't even pay attention to this almighty, all-powerful God. We're too caught up in our lives. And then when we do need him, we do cry out, why would he bother listening to us? Because he's the God of Jacob too. He's the God almighty and he's the God of Jacob. You see, this means that he's a God of covenant. This means that God is a God who chose you. If you believe in Jesus, if you have trusted him as your savior, if you hang your, you've thrown your life's lot in with Jesus, it means that God has set his affection on you. 
despite the fact that you don't look at him or, or think of him often enough, despite the fact that you don't care about him the way you ought to, despite the fact that you don't obey, obey him the way you ought to, Jacob, of all the patriarchs in the Bible, Jacob is the worst, man. The dude's a snake. Not a good role model. And yet, he's the one that God set his affection on. God chose him by grace. And if you love Jesus at all, you know what? He chose you by grace too. Which means he will not give up on you. Which means you can trust him. Which means you can appeal to him. Last point. We experience security, we experience safety through worship. Or to put it another way, the safety of home is driven home to our hearts through worship. Look at verse 10. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of, God, of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Hmm. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wicked. What's that about? Well, he wrote this because that's probably what he was, was a doorkeeper. See, the sons of Korah were the janitors of the temple. They were the guys who were keeping it up, keeping it clean, keeping it going doing the repairs and the maintenance, etc. But they were not involved in the worshiping life of the temple. In fact, they weren't even allowed inside the temple. That was for the Levites. The sons of Korah were not even allowed in it. And that's why they're saying, when they say, like, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, they're, they're, they're saying, you know what? Even the slightest contact, we're on the periphery of the temple here. And even the slightest contact with God through real heartfelt worship is better than the deepest involvement in sin. Look, why do you sin? It's not rocket science. You sin because it promises satisfaction. It feels good. So indulge. That's what you tell yourself. That's what Satan tells you. Because it feels good. And the psalmist is saying here, look, no amount of satisfaction that sin provides compares with even a trace of the love of God that you experience in worship. Now, I'd love to unpack that a little bit more. I, I don't have time for that, so you've just got to understand that that's what he's arguing, and here's why. Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. This is a traveler psalm. This is a pilgrim psalm. This is a, a psalm of a sense. What does a traveler need on his way to Jerusalem? Well, he needs the sun. The sun, darkness is dangerous. That's when the thieves and bandits come out. So sunshine is safety. Sunshine is also warmth and life. It kind of sucks to travel in the rain or in the snow. Sun brings joy, and a shield brings security. It's protection.
but then the Lord also gives honor and favor. You know, one of the great promises in the New Testament, it's amazing, is that when you and I are done our earthly journey, if you're a Christian, you know, and the light goes out here, the light's going to go on for eternity. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you are going to hear your Savior say to you, when you enter his kingdom forever, to spend eternity being amazed at what he has done for you in his death and resurrection. But on the way into that kingdom, you know what he's going to tell you? He's going to say, well done, good and faithful servant. He's going to say to you the same thing that the father said to the son at his baptism. At Jesus' baptism, God the father said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen, friends, you <laughs> honor, favor, the thing that you want, acceptance the thing that you want, approval, the thing that you want, security, it's all there in the presence of God. When we gather to worship together, we rehearse this story over and over and over again. We tell it to God and we tell it to each other. We say it's true. Sometimes it may be hard for you to believe, but someone is telling you each Lord's Day when you come to worship, it's true. God is real, God loves you, God accepts you. You're home. And God communicates this to us through one another. If you wanna know whether God is real and whether God gives grace, you, you gotta get in community with Christians. I, I will say very, very quickly, um, I know a man who went through a very hard time in his late teens very, very hard time, a terrible tragedy hit him. And he struggled terribly uh, with his faith for a period of time. And he had a hard time going to church, but he went. And one of the things he said that was remarkable about being there was that he had a hard time believing this gospel he was hearing and singing and rehearsing, but he looked around at the congregation and there were times where they believed for him. It's an astounding statement. They believed for him. There are times when you will need that from your brothers and sister friends, when they will believe for you because you are part of that family. You know, I, I preached actually last week at New City, kind of last minute, they, they asked me to fill in, and so I was there, and masks, distancing, no nursery, no kids, reduced capacity, all that stuff, same thing that we're going to face, and it was very, very different, and I was like, oh, how's this going to go? And I got to tell you, it was amazing. It was awesome. It was wonderful. It was a taste of home. That's what it was. Next Sunday, we begin services, friends, and Lord willing, we do. <laughs> and, you know, some of us are, are anxious about returning to worship. Some of us have young ones, right? And we're like, what are we going to do <laughs> with our little ones? I get that. Um, uh, we had uh, four kids in five years. And uh, when we started, when I started as a senior pastor in a church, um, 
Jessica had to sit with these four kids in, the, in a pew all by herself. And it, it was tough. There were many a Sunday, frankly, where she wondered if she got anything out of the service or not. Um, and there are seasons in our lives that are like that. But, but if we are a community of grace, you got noisy littles, you don't have to worry about bothering anybody else. And if it's hard for you to participate, I totally, I totally get that. And kids can adjust. For centuries, kids were in church. <laughs> um, for centuries. And they can be again. Um, but some of you may not come uh, because of that. I get it. I get it. It's, it's stressful. Some of you are immuno, immunocompromised, and so you can't attend worship for your own safety. I get that too. Uh, some of you have family members who are immunocompromised, and so you can't attend for their safety, and I totally understand that too. And some of you maybe are just uncomfortable with attending at this point. Okay. We're going to keep live streaming, so Lord willing, you'll be able to be connected. But for many of us, for many of us, we can come. And the reason we come, even with these restrictions and even with the anxiety that may come from it, we come because it's worth it. Because we're coming home, getting a taste of it in the presence of our Savior. I look forward to seeing you next Lord's Day. In the meantime, have a wonderful week. Let's pray. Father, thank you, O Lord, for your kindness and grace. Thank you for the gift of worship. We pray that if and when we gather together again to worship you in person, that you will be pleased by it and you will welcome us back home in the arms of our loving Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.